Hello, and welcome to another Sessions by SE podcast. I'm Kevin, and I'll be your host today. We're back with another SE alumnus, Jamie Wong. Jamie graduated SE in 2014 and has been an early employee at Khan Academy and Figma. He also writes a popular blog detailing his coding adventures and life musings. We're super excited to have you here, Jamie. Thanks, Kevin. Happy to be here. So can you give us a quick recap of your life before SE and maybe specifically how you got into tech and software engineering as a field? Yeah, so I have a pretty a pretty specific way that I entered in that is maybe a little unusual. My entry into, into coding and software engineering came pretty young and it, it came when one summer my mom just asked me, what, what do you want to do this summer? And I told her that I wanted to play with Lego. And she kind of told me that's, that's, not, that's not really a thing. But then she asked around and then discovered that uh, there actually was this summer camp in Ottawa where I grew up called Virtual Ventures. And Virtual Ventures did actually have a program where people could go play with Lego to do Lego robotics. So I went there the first time when I was in first grade. And then during that camp, I, I, I learned like how to make simple websites. And at the time, we were making websites and just putting them on floppy disks. And we didn't host them anywhere. They were just literally files on the, these like three and a half inch floppy disks. So then I, I went there a couple times throughout grade school, but then I think it was around sixth grade where I started going for the entire summers. I ended up going so much that I got I got bumped up through through like the older and older programs because I kept like running out of things to do. But it was the first time I'd been kind of immersed in this environment where people were just really, really interested in learning how to use technology to kind of do fun things. And I eventually ended up going back there as a volunteer and then as a counselor. So it ended up being like a really formative part of growing up for me. And I think one of the really interesting effects of that is my entry point into this stuff was not through academia. So it was not, the, the first couple of things I did in this area were not evaluated as like a, you know, this is the grade you get on it. It was really much more driven by my own curiosity and what I was able to do with it. So from from there, I did end up, you know, getting interested in this academically. I started to get interested in writing programming competitions. I started to build my own, my own website, um, actually online this time, not on a three and a half inch floppy disk. And I just, I just like really started to try to sponge up all the the kinds of technical knowledge that I could while I was in high school. And I worked on a lot of side projects during this time. So because of that, I, I actually kind of knew fairly early on that I wanted to do Waterloo Software Engineering. I think I figured this out in around grade nine. And then I kind of just like worked towards that path and it just kind of panned out that way. So th- that's like the, a few of the, the key elements that kind of brought me there it was summer camp to play with Lego. And then I got really interested in programming competitions, and then that led me to Waterloo. Wow, that's a lot of persistence throughout the years. Um, just like very focused on a goal or very very much knowing what you want. I would say it's definitely more knowing what I want rather than focused on a goal because it wasn't that like there's this one specific thing I really want. It's that there's this, this curiosity that I really want to follow because it just felt so good having this feedback loop of learning things and then being able to build things and then kind of show that off. I definitely like did no like zero market analysis. I had no idea what the, the actual market for software engineering looked like. I just knew that it was a thing that I really enjoyed that had good programs at Waterloo. Interesting. Having thought about it for so much of your life, the transition between high school to Waterloo, what was that like with so much preparation? Did you find that your expectations were subverted? Were there any lessons that you learned? I wrote about two different facets of this on my website. So I have one post that's a letter to my 18-year-old self. I wrote this right after graduation and kind of tried to compact a lot of the, the lessons and realizations I'd had throughout university and things that I wish I'd known upon entry. A lot of it was, I think that the most jarring thing for me that was really hard was recognizing that the classroom environment during university is no longer a social setting. And I think that that was really hard for me because in high school, those things being really tightly integrated really, really helped me 
connect with people in a way that I found much harder in university. So like in high school, at least for me anyway, a lot of my classroom experience was I would be learning, but I'd also have this chances to interact with my peers in the context of those classrooms. So having the learning activity and the socialization be really tightly integrated. And the nature of lecture formats means that that's just not how that works. There are some classes at Waterloo that do kind of mimic this, like SpeechCom was a thing that I really liked because it, it was much more similar to the, the kind of high school environment. But for the most part, it's like one directional flow. You don't really talk in class. There's no interaction with your, with your peers. So I found that pretty jarring. So that was one, one facet. And then the other facet that I talk about in a little bit in that letter and then also in this other thing I wrote uh, called The Monoculture and Me was at first being surrounded by people that were really, really interested in, in the narrower kinds of technical pursuits that I was interested in was really nice. But I, I started to notice eventually that it really, really narrowed my focus in a way that I don't think was ultimately healthy. It was just really, really hard to escape into talking about anything that was not school and tech. And I found that ultimately really, really limiting. So I wish that I had spread out more earlier in university and, and had like not prioritized academic and tech, about, and tech above everything else upon entry. Some other, like another facet of my experience at Waterloo that, that really shaped it a lot was joining Badminton Club. I wish I had, I had like done that in a larger capacity much earlier. I wish I had joined the exec team basically immediately. So that's, that's another facet that was really different between my experience in, in high school and, and Waterloo. You talked a little bit about the tech monoculture there, and I'm super fascinated by this. How did you personally try and break out of the tech monoculture, and were you successful? Yeah, I mean, um, I was able to break out of it in some sense. Part of it was that I, I pretty consciously changed my friend group away from being predominantly my classmates. One of the things, again, about software engineering that is both, it's a very much a double-edged sword, is the, the cohorting. Because it means that it's very, very easy to literally only talk to people in your class for your entire duration of time at Waterloo. So I made a pretty deliberate effort to get away from just hanging out with that group. So my, my friend group kind of flipped during one of my internships when I was in, in San Francisco. And I, I shifted to being friends with, it was still a group of interns. So why, this is why I'm saying like kind of, because still a lot of my friends are very heavily in tech. Like most of my friends are still software engineers and PMs and designers. But the context of us meeting was not in like a tech-driven context. So even though it's true that many of my friends are still in tech, that's not mostly what I talk to them about. And I think that the, the context in which you meet people and the, the way that the rhythm you get into in conversation really affects the, the nature of your relationship. So I did, I did like kind of succeed in the sense that I did have this, this group of friends that most of what we talked about was not you know, computer science and algorithms and like what different tech companies are doing evaluations. But in, in another sense, I did not in that still the majority of my friends are in tech. So it's, it's, it's a fine balance. For sure, for sure, yeah. You talked a little bit about Badminton Club. Would you say that that helped a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, a thing that I really did like at university near the, the later years is I eventually did have these distinct friend groups where I felt like I could express different facets of my own personality. My friends from Badminton were very much not my academic and tech friends. So the, the lowest common denominator for all of us was obviously Badminton, but also just like kind of gooning around. One of the things that ended up actually being really helpful to me was was just going to going to eat like right after badminton with a lot of the same people every week i started to to just like kind of build up my social confidence in a way that did not i was not leaning really heavily on like things i know about academics or like tech so it, it really helped me kind of expand my horizons a little bit there but still in the context of something that i was really interested in so there is i, I kind of ended up at the end of university having that crowd of friends through badminton i had my friends that I had started with, like the ones among my class, and then I also had this group of friends that had stemmed from spending a lot of time with them going on adventures while we were all interns in San Francisco. 
pivoting a little bit away from your like social well-being in SE and more towards your like professional life. After SE, you, you chose to go to Khan Academy. Uh, was there some strategy to this? Uh, could you talk a little bit about this decision? Some facets of this decision I have good justifications for that I can explain, and some of it was kind of dumb, um, but I'll talk about the, the justifications first. So I, I had interned there actually twice. My internship history at Khan Academy is kind of strange in that the first time I interned there, I was a remote intern because I really wanted to stay in Toronto at the time. And then the second time was even stranger. I proposed to Ben Caymans, who was the, the VP engine of Khan Academy at the time. So I'm like, hey, like, I really want to come intern again, but I also want to go travel around Europe. For my last internship, so at Waterloo, this is maybe a helpful thing to know, you only need five of your six official co-ops to graduate. So for the last one, I just didn't take an official co-op, and instead I went backpacking around Europe and then worked part-time for Khan Academy. And this was sweet because I worked about 20 hours a week, and the result was that I actually I actually came back cash positive from backpacking for, for three months. So that was really nice. We definitely, if you can, if you can find a way to swing that, I would definitely recommend. It, it was a pretty unique circumstance, and, and I was I was really shocked that Khan Academy let me do it. So this is again the kind of thing that's much easier to pull off at small companies when they don't need to think as much about about the ripple effects of policies. Because like the VPN basically just told me like on the spot like yeah let's do it, and there, it, it was like it was not like a let me go talk to HR we'll get back to you in three weeks. It was like yeah like I, I was just visiting Khan Academy one day, and he's like yeah we should totally do this. That sounds great. So my experience from all of that from that I, I got to work with two people at Khan Academy that. I really, really enjoyed working with. For the first four months when I was there, when I was working from Toronto, I worked on I worked on the first iteration of the Khan Academy computer science curriculum. So I was working with John Rezig, who was like the, the creator of jQuery, which at the time was like by far the most well-known JavaScript framework and is a little less so now. So from working with him, it was really, it was really cool to, to just see the ability to push out product into the world really, really rapidly. And then the second internship, when I was back back around Europe, I worked with Craig Silverstein, who was the first employee at Google, and then ended up coming to, to Khan Academy as the Dean of Infrastructure. And after working with him for a few months, I really, really wanted to go back and learn more from him. The reason I wanted to go back and learn from him was that he was very comfortable at pushing back on my work. So this is a thing that I think people might underappreciate, that you're at, if you're in an environment where mentors are mostly just like rubber stamping your work or, saying like, or, or like giving you like very, very minor feedback, it's really hard to learn rapidly because you just like don't have a good feedback cycle. And Craig was very, very good at, like, he, he would say like, hey, like, I agree that this works, but architecturally this is going to be really hard to maintain, so you need to change all these things before this can land. So finding someone that was willing to push back and whose opinions I really agreed with allowed me to learn much, much more rapidly. So, so one of the reasons I went back to Khan Academy is I wanted to continue learning from Craig, and I really wanted to have that direct mentorship. So like the, the higher level thing here is people talk in choosing companies a little bit about the difference between choosing companies versus choosing teams. I think if possible, I would go like even one step further and, and then to the extent possible, try to choose specific mentors. And if you're joining companies that you've never worked at before, this is, this is really challenging, but there are situations where you might be able to tell this. Because ultimately, how much you learn at a company is gonna be heavily dependent on how much you can, you can learn directly from people. And I think especially as an intern, as a new grad, the mentorship can like really, really rapidly accelerate your growth. And while it's possible to have mentors that you're not working directly with, ultimately by working directly with someone, you get to learn not only through the things that they specifically say, but also just from observing the way that they work. So I went back in part to learn directly from Craig. I also really deeply believed in the mission of Khan Academy and I still do. It was kind of a line. So that, that, that's like the kind of sensible reason. And then the dumber reasons, which is also the reason I was in Toronto the first time, is that I, I was like dating someone at the time and I just didn't want to like do long distance. So that's a less good reason. Would not recommend pursuing that as like a primary decision mechanism. And Connie Kanu was, was, again, after graduation, one of the companies that let me work remotely. So I worked remotely for about a year, and then I ended up going to the, 
to the Mountain View office and work there for the remainder of my time. And there's a lot of information there and a lot of good advice. I wanted to touch a little bit briefly on what you talked about mentorship, looking for specific mentors. Like once you found those good specific mentors and you're working with them, how do you make the most of that mentorship experience? Is it mostly just their critique or is there something that you can do as a mentee to like make that experience better? Oh yeah, I mean, there's definitely lots you can do to make it more effective. I think that one of the things that I've realized over time is most people who are good at things understand some facets of why they're good at it, but a lot of what they're good at is like kind of invisible to them, which means that if you ask them like, you know, how do I grow in this way? They might not have a good answer, but if you observe the way that they work and you start to question like, why do they do these specific things? Then you can learn a lot from that. So an example of this from working with, with Craig, a thing that I noticed that he did quite differently than a lot of other people, he was very good at staying incredibly focused. And that took two very specific forms to me. One of them was just at all times in every project, he was just asking, okay, what is the next step? So that's all that really matters. It's, it's, it's about staying focused on the next actionable thing. So as soon as some task was done, it was not like, okay, let's go back to, to see like what things to evaluate. It was just like, what is the next thing we need to do to make forward progress on this? And then a related thing was, this is a very subtle thing, but I think it actually has significant effects. If he was waiting for something to build, he would just sit and watch it rather than going on Twitter or something. And I think that people really underestimate the effects that context switching to things that are not work-related can have on your focus and your ability to, to make progress. Because if you have going to look at Twitter as part of your development loop, then you're going to get constantly distracted. And it, it really, really adds up over time. It also hides issues of your development loop slowing down over time. Whereas if you're forced to look at it, then you're like, okay, this is definitely slower than it needs to be. How do I accelerate this loop? So looking at the specific way that he stayed focused on tasks and was always just ruthless about how do we make forward progress was really, really helpful. And then honestly, pair programming and pair debugging with him was also really, really fruitful. For most of my time at Khan Academy, once I was in office, I intentionally like asked for a desk right next to him so that I could work as closely with him as possible to try to really just absorb his entire working style. And, and from doing that, I got a really, really solid foundation in software engineering. Wow, that's an amazing experience, it sounds like. To follow that up, what made you switch companies, right? Like, why aren't you at Khan Academy anymore? If It sounds like you learned so much. There's a couple of reasons. One of them was just that I, I knew that at some point I wanted to work in computer graphics. I wanted to, to really learn just like, you know, how to do cool stuff on the GPU. And I didn't really want to work on, I didn't really want to work on like traditional websites anymore, at least not for, for a while. So while near the tail end of my time at, at Khan Academy, I ended up going to the Figma office for an open house. And I'd been kind of following Evan Wallace, the, one of the Figma's co-founders work for a while. And I, I was just constantly blown away by the kinds of things that he was putting out. So a lot of things that, that I had seen early on were kind of graphics experiments he'd put out. He has this infamous ball in a pool experiment. It's what we call WebGL Water is the, is the name of it that is like reasonably well known, where he was able to demonstrate this, this like very photorealistic looking water and light simulation um, running in browser. And, it, and at the time, like no one had really ever had seen anything like it. And it was really, really impressive for his time. And then from, from there, I kind of like dug around to a lot of other stuff he had done and was just really, really impressed by his ability to write things that were both extremely performant and extremely readable. Most people can only really do one of those things, if either. And he was really able to combine both of them. So at the Figma open house, I ended up talking to him for like, two hours and was just totally blown away by the breadth and depth of his knowledge. Like sometimes when I'm talking to someone who like is really technically deep, I'll try to, I'll kind of try to like poke around to try to find where the boundaries of their knowledge are um, just to see like what I can, what I can learn from them. And I like literally couldn't find the boundaries anywhere. So I just really, really wanted to, 
to learn this more specific skill set from Evan. So I, I, I stayed at Khan Academy for a while after that because I really wanted to finish the projects I was working on there. After that, I took a six-month break because I, I really wanted to just like let my brain totally reset between jobs. And then I, at the time, ramped up on a bunch of different graphic stuff and then interviewed at a few different companies, but ultimately ended up going back to Figma because the I really wanted to learn from Evan and there was a bunch of other signals from the company that made it really seem like a place that I could, I could thrive. It seems like your experiences in choosing where to work are very like person-centric, right? Like you know this specific person and they very much draw you to that company. How do you find these people, right? Like what, what draws you to them? So I was talking to a friend about this recently and my view of this is kind of, I'm trying to find a wizard. Before, before I had actually met Evan, I read one of his, his blog posts about building the foundations of Figma. And I remember my distinct reaction reading it is this man is a wizard. Like, the, the things he's describing are not things that most people even think of attempting. And then at the bottom of the article, I remember him mentioning that occasionally he runs into browser bugs and then spends an afternoon building Chromium and fixing them. And, like, you know, going and building the browser and fixing bugs in it when you're not a core Chrome engineer is just, like, it was just, like, completely bananas to me. Like, I just couldn't process what that even really meant. The kind of pattern that I kind of think about is I want to find someone who knows how to do something that I have no idea how to do, who's also, who can also actually explain how to do it. Both those things are important to me. So there's some people that are, that are very good teachers, but the, their domain doesn't ex- extend that much past what I already know. And then there's similarly people that are extremely good at what they do, but are, are not particularly good teachers. And someone can be not a good teacher either because they're not good at explaining things or because they're very arrogant and hard to work with. So the people that I, I look for to try to learn from are people who are extremely good at what they do, very clear communicators, and very humble. And both of my, my past mentors are exactly exactly in satisfy all those criteria. And I can imagine that, that like a similar kind of pattern for things in the future could be really, really valuable. Not only in tech, but, but just generally like, you know, similarly, I think that if if you want to start a company and then you you found someone who had really bootstrapped a company really rapidly and you can go and see the company culture is really excellent. And then part of your brain is like, I have no idea how to do this. And they also have written extensively about their thought process, then like, yeah, maybe you should try to go learn from that person. And this applies not only even to work, but like to many, many different facets of life. But th- that's kind of the, the formula I think about is like, are they able to do things that make them seem like a wizard to me? Are they a clear communicator and willing to teach me? And are they humble? To follow that up though, every time that you've gone to these places to work, they've always been at the very, very beginning of their life. Uh, Khan Academy was a smaller when you started and Figma was 20 people when you started there. Do you see this as a risk, these companies being so early in their life cycle? Yeah, I mean, like, it really depends on what you mean by risk. So there's different ways to, to view risk. If you're talking about financial risk, then definitely going to Khan Academy was not financially the best decision in that I was going to a company that's a not-for-profit, so there's no equity. That was definitely not a major consideration. Like, I, I did all the math to think about what the computer off- community offers would mean. So, like, I, I understood the, what I was giving up, but I was just, like, willing to do that. Another kind of risk is like, what if this just is in a good environment for learning? And I was much less concerned about that kind of risk. So I think that conversely, like you can join like a company that you know very little about, but you see that their business metrics are really good. And that's a, that, that kind of flips the risk where you might, like you're, you're pretty much guaranteed to, to end up being financially well off, but it's, a, it's like way more of a dice roll of whether you're going to end up learning the things you want to learn because you don't know as much about the specific people you'd be working with. You don't know whether the variety of work that you want to do is even available to do because it can very easily and quickly get filled in by other people if you're at larger companies. So I was kind of trading off different risks and I was really, really optimizing for for rapid learning rather than for finances. And like, honestly, like Figma has done very well and that's that's like, it worked out very well financially for me as well. 
but that was lucky. That was that was not like I didn't do market analysis. I didn't know anything about what the the broader marketplace looked like. And I would definitely suggest that if you do want to join companies like this, to, to try to do some of that, to try to do some due diligence under the lens of thinking about learning rapidly. I think that even if the company had failed, it was the right choice because I ultimately did learn the things I wanted to learn. As Figma has grown, have you found that the learning experience has changed? Have you found that company culture in general has changed? Yeah. The learning experience has definitely changed in that I learn much less through mentorship and much more through driving projects now. The kinds of skill sets you learn are a little bit different. So I had my first experience being a tech lead at, at Khan Academy, but I've done a lot more of that at Figma. And you kind of just like learn through doing in those environments. And you obviously have support structures from talking to other people who have done this many times before. But it means that the kinds of skills I've been developing over the last year or two have been much more around thinking through project management, thinking through how to to build up areas of work for people to do in parallel in a way that doesn't cause them to clash, rather than learning hard technical skills directly from via mentorship. So that's like one, one shift that happened. That can happen at companies of any scale. And I think that as people get more senior, it's very common for, for those skills to be developed and that to be the focus. So... That's one way in which it's really changed. Another way in which it's changed is people's roles definitely do end up being slightly more specialized. And like really early on, I would be, for some projects, I tried to like also do completely run all the user testing for the project. So like I worked on developer handoff really early on at Figma, which has been completely, completely replaced since by that, uh, by a whole team that like understands much more deeply the problem. But I, I like sat down and read an entire book about, about user testing and then figured out how to, to go on site to all these different customers to talk to them to try to understand their needs for the specific area. And that's just much less likely to be a thing that would be concentrated on one person now to both do the user testing by themselves and the implementation. There's still a lot of flexibility to, to involve myself in that process. So I, I still like sit in on user testing calls, but I'm much less likely to be the one that's, that's running the show for that. So there's lots of different ways in which company scaling up changes experience. You know, we, we just have a lot more people with a lot more deep experience in different areas. When I joined the company, we had no sales team. We had no marketing team. We had no copy editors. It was basically just like engineering and then a few, it was like engineering and designers, obviously. Thinking without designers would be very sad. And then just a lot of people at the company to, to help make sure the company was still running smoothly. But the, these more specialized portions of the, the company just hadn't been built up yet. Another example of this being... When I joined, there was no customer support organization. So that meant that engineers were much more likely to be spending time talking directly to customers more frequently because like we were the support org as well. The way, there are ways in which specialization tends to happen over time as companies grow. Pivoting to like a broader scope of your entire career, as you think back to it, what are some skills that you wish you'd picked up earlier? I think that I underestimated the, the value of relationship building in the context of work. And I think this is both true in terms of the, the leverage it provides you to get things done, but it's also just true in like how it makes work more enjoyable. A lot of my time at Khan Academy was remote, which makes some of these things harder. Some people are, are still good at doing this, but definitely a lot of my own social dynamics just make it easier for me to, to get to know people in person. I think that's true for most people. At Figma, I was much more conscious of, of trying to get to know people. So like whenever anyone new joined the company, I would try to set up time to talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. And a lot of the conversation would, I would try, to, would try to revolve around getting to know them as individuals, not just a, as their work experience. So I think that that was a pretty intentional change I made when I joined Figma. I think that has been really, really valuable and has allowed me to do, allowed me to much more easily make plans and changes that are cross-cutting across different areas of the company because I, I just had these good relationships built up. So that's one. And then another one that, that like I have been consciously building for, for long periods of time, but I think really, really pays dividends in ways that people might underestimate is just getting good at writing. I think generally 
a lot more of writing code and making changes is communication than people realize. Like I think the act of writing code generally is in some ways about written communication. Many years ago, I was at a conference where Jeremy Ashkenaz, like the, the creator of Backbone and CoffeeScript and a couple other major projects, he's giving a talk and he, he talked about this, this strange endeavor of writing code where writing code is really writing for two audiences. It's writing first most for for other people to understand the intent and it just you just want it to coincidentally precisely describe what the machine needs to do. But viewing viewing code as communication between people is I think really valuable. And I think that um, along the same lines, writing really forces you to, to think through how to convey ideas and it forces you to, to like have empathy for readers going through the same process. So I think that written communication is, is I think communication in general is is like undervalued, but especially written communication in the context of, of software engineering is really, really valuable. And I would really encourage people to try to, to actively develop that skill. What are some practices that you use to make sure that your code is easier to understand or it's communicative as you described? Yeah. So, I mean, th this is the definitely stepping back and then trying to, trying to view things with fresh eyes. Like imagine after having written, imagine if you were someone new to the code base, what the process of reading would feel like. It's like a very similar principle to, to writing is just remembering that you are writing for an audience and then thinking through what audience, what information the audience has and what they need to know. Aside from that, this is again the, the variety of things that's, that's really difficult to convey directly simply with words. A lot of this comes from the experience of doing this for hundreds of hours and watching masters of their craft do this for hundreds of hours and really seeing the kinds of things they do. So I think that one really core tenet of software engineering that I, I very strongly abide by is the principle of least surprise. That like at all times, code should be doing the least surprising thing it might be doing. You know, as a very simple example, this function should not do a thing that they don't say that they do. They should not have like surprising side effects. And a kind of corollary to that is any situation where the code does need to do something surprising, that's when having very clear written documentation around what why this strange behavior is there is really valuable. So rather than like documenting things that are very evident from what the code is doing, documenting the things that are surprising, and then approach a specific thing that I got from Manhattan Khan Academy is whenever I'm writing any kind of new, um, whole new area of code, like a new file, then I'll always try to write a thing at the top of the file that explains like, what is this thing at all? Like, why does this thing exist? So that's, that's like two kind of specific practices. Thinking back to like an even broader scope to like your whole life, what are some pieces of a... Uh, what are some pieces of advice that you'd wish you'd known during or before SE? I think that a thing that has become a much more conscious facet is just that finding ways to teach your peers is incredibly valuable for everyone involved. It forces you to make sure you understand things. I think people often overestimate how well they understand things until they try to teach it, and then through the process of teaching, discover lots of ways in which they don't really understand the, the subject matter. In situations where you have been working in a narrow area, you think you have some insight, teaching it can be really valuable because it, it both forms as a kind of connection between you and other people, it builds really good relationships, and like I said, it forces you to clarify your thought. That kind of teaching I think is really valuable. Another facet which is difficult for me to internalize but I think is is like very important is that, that largely you are not in competition with your peers. And I think that this, this has like some link to the teaching facet where I think some people might worry that like by, by trying to step up and, and teach that they're providing access to their their peers to like gain this information that allow them to, to catch up to them and I think that that's like taking a like way too narrow a view of what you're doing ultimately like your peers catching up to you is not a bad thing 
hopefully it means that they that you're still moving forward and they're accelerating and that that's that's good like you want to be able to bring up the whole all your peers with you not just try to like you know run away and, and like leave them in the dust as fast as possible so I, th- I think that like with that mentality if you can maintain that it can be really really valuable there's like a facet of humility that are associated with this like a thing that that I always cringe with every time is whenever I see like a new a new frosh group pop up there's always that one guy that like posts like hey like this is my GPA like entering average like what was yours and I'm like oh dude like what are you doing because it's always a dude so like if, if you think if you think about this lens of like you are not in competition, that post serves no purpose. Viewing people a little more multidimensionally than that, and then also recognizing that the only information you're getting from that is like, is this this like one really narrow measuring stick, and you end up looking like a dick doing it. So like, just don't do that. And yeah, there's, all, there's always one. It's amazing. Once you're able to really take on that perspective of like we are all moving up together, then I think that it can ha- it can really help with this perspective of like oh no someone is like speeding up am i am i like doing something wrong because again like you're not you're not in competition like it's 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 like a it's like a, it's, it's it's like taking too narrow a view i think so that's like another thing that, that i think because i definitely did have points where i did like panic a little bit when i noticed many of my my classmates like really really catching up because I, I did have like a pretty good head start just have having started coding really young but in retrospect it's great because a lot of the, those a lot of those peers that we're catching up now. Now they have like all this expertise in all these different areas I don't know anything about. And if I need help with those things now, I can go ask them, which is great. Whereas I, I think if I had always been trying to trying to like stay ahead of them and then making that a point, it would have damaged our relationship, which is just not worth it. Well, I think that wraps up everything we have for you today. Thanks so much for being on the show. You had some awesome insight for our audience. If people want to hear more from you or like read more about you, where can they find you online? Yes, you can find me on Twitter at JLF Wong, or you can find me on my, web- on my website, jamie-wong.com. Once again, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you. See you next time on Sessions by Essie.